Please open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. This is going to be the primary text for this Sunday and the next three weeks as we take a temporary break from our verse-by-verse walk through the Gospels, a series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, to do a short series on financial stewardship, a series that I've decided to call Gospel-Centered Giving. Gospel-Centered Giving. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9 over the next at least two weeks. Um, We may even go all the way up to um, Palm Sunday and conclude this series on Palm Sunday. Um, So find that spot in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 8, verse 1, and and hold your spot there. I'm going to get to the text in a little bit, but I want to go over some other things um, first here this morning. Now, I've got something here in my hand, um, an illustration to to sort of explain what we're doing this morning. So what do I I have here? I'm not offering anybody to drink it. Thank you. Thank you. uh, But the thing is, it's been sitting up here a while. So we're not, we're not going to drink it. But I've got, I've got milk, right? This is a a glass of milk. How many of you kids out there like milk? All right. How many of you adults out there like milk? I still love milk. Good glass of milk, right? Okay. Now, this milk, though, is, is special. What's better than just a glass of milk? And I'm not talking about Dr. Pepper or something, but what can make milk even better? Right here, Jesse. What? Cookies, yes. Cookies make it better. But something even, let's say you don't have cookies, something else that can make it even so much better. Over here, chocolate, chocolate. Now, I'm holding this glass here, and does this look like chocolate milk? No, it doesn't look like chocolate milk. Have you ever had chocolate milk before and you use that good Hershey syrup or Aldi syrup and you then set it aside and you come back because you forgot it was there and you come back a little bit later and what's happened to it? What's happened to all the, the syrup? It's, it's all fallen down to the bottom. So see, this actually is chocolate milk, okay? But it needs some help, okay? It needs to be what? Stirred up. So you start stirring it and oh yeah, there we go. Now it starts looking like chocolate milk, and yes, the Aldi's brand doesn't quite dissolve as quickly as the Hershey's, but there we go. All right, so now it's chocolate milk, and now it even looks yummy, right, Vera? Because she wanted the milk when I first, her hand popped up the moment I walked out here with the milk. Okay, now it looks even yummier. Now that it's been stirred up, now that it's stirred up, we can see how sweet it is, how yummy it looks, and we can see that it is indeed chocolate milk. Now... There's a passage of scripture that speaks of Christians being stirred up, okay? What we're doing here this morning, this, this worship service, the scriptures speak of this being a time for us to stir one another up. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing nearer. So we are here this morning to stir one another up to good works because we, like the chocolate milk, sitting by ourselves, can let the goodness of God just sort of descend to the bottom and we need each other, each other to stir one another up to be the type of people that are doing good deeds, that are showing love. Now, one of the things that stood out in my study this week as I began to think about stewardship and And how do we handle our resources as believers? And as I began to study, what stood out in my mind, or stood out from the text, from the different passages I was looking at, was how often good works 
are directly or indirectly associated with how we handle our money. So often in the scriptures there's, there's a mention of good works and it's either directly or indirectly connected to how we handle our material resources. Let me give you a couple of examples. First Timothy 6 verse 17. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Okay, so we have this passage in 1 Timothy, and Paul is saying that true wealth, spiritual wealth, is found in our good works, which involves us being ready to share and let go of our material possessions. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Said, and this, is, this passage, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, are actually one unit. So this is later in this letter that we're going to be looking at today. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So our, our good works... Again, are associated with bountiful sowing of earthly resources. And if we are faithful with what we have, God will continue to provide resources for the sake of continued good works. Now, we all know that good works or good deeds, if you will, are the fruit of a transformed life, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 talks about we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But then we get to verse 10 and it says, For we are God's work, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So good works is the fruit of transformation. So I want you to think about that. Good works being the fruit of a transformed life. And now I want to look at what John the Baptist says should accompany a transformed life. When he tells people to repent, and that's what transformation is. It's the repentance, the, the turning from sin and self and turning to Christ alone and that transformation that happens. Luke 3 verse 8, John the Baptist is calling on the people to bear fruit, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, bear fruit that keeps with the transformation that's consistent with the transformation that's happened in your life. And I find it very interesting. He then gives three examples of that beginning in verse 10 of Luke chapter 3. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do then? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And, and what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Isn't it interesting that the examples that John the Baptist decides to give in regarding to what fruit flowing out of a transformed life looks like all are related to how we handle material possessions. So all that to say, the purpose of this series is to stir us up to good works in the form of generous, gospel-centered giving of our resources to God's glory. 
So this financial stewardship series is not about raising money or stirring up guilt or anything like that. It's a series about our health. Our spiritual health as individuals. I need this as much as anyone else in the room. I need to grow in the area of how I handle my financial resources. And as a church, we corporately need this. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We don't want to be a people who, who love the world so much that we hold on to the things of the world. This series is about blessings for us individually and our church now. Spiritual blessings. Acts 23.35, we have some words that Jesus spoke that aren't recorded in the Gospels, but they're recorded in Acts 20, verse 35, where Jesus says, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So, so this is about blessings now, spiritual blessings we reap when we let go of material possessions, and it's also about blessings in the future, Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let's let this series, my desire is for this series to stir us up to good works, not the least of which is gospel-centered, generous giving. So that was the sermon before the sermon. So now please, if you would, stand as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1, we stand because we believe in the authority of these words. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if there's nothing else that's heard this morning, don't let any of us not hear that last verse. Help us to see that everything in the scriptures, including every passage about giving, is centered on Jesus Christ. Is centered on the gospel. So Father, keep me from gospel-less preaching about money. There's plenty of that. Enable us all to be hearers of your word this morning. And give me the grace to speak. Without your grace, I can't do anything. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, you've probably heard this many times by now. But uh, the Bible speaks a whole lot about giving. And um, 
it, all throughout the scriptures, there's lots about how we handle our resources, our material wealth. And so there's lots of different texts that you could choose to go to to study uh, financial stewardship and, and how to handle our material possessions. Now, you've probably heard this as well, that if you take the entirety of Jesus' words, at least 15% of what he spoke about was in regards to our uh, material possessions. So why is that? You know, when you think about that, why, why is it that there's so much discussion of how we handle material possessions? And be they in the form of things that we have, houses and, or, or, or uh, income through jobs or whatever it might be. Why is it that there's so much discussion in the scriptures about how we handle material um, possessions? Well, I think it is because of what 1 Timothy 6.10 says. And that is that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's what Paul tells Timothy. So, so God's word takes repeated chops at that root. It, it, the love of money, not money, it's important, but the love of money is the root of all evil. The Bible is like an axe going at it, at that root, in many different ways. Uh, but it's hard to get that root up, isn't it? I mean, I've got these... Um, I may have shared this illustration before, but right outside our sunroom, there's these holly bushes. And I have been trying since we've lived in that house to get rid of those holly bushes. And I have chopped them down and where there was just these little stumps and thought nothing would happen. And next thing you know, I'm like, by this next summer, they're back. And, uh, and then I chop them down again. They're back. And I chop them down and put, put um, like Roundup, full strength, nothing, just spray it all over the root trying to kill it. And they come back. They keep coming back. Next thing I know, I've got to get a shovel and start chopping away at the root. Finally, I think I've killed one of them, but there's still two that keep coming back because I can't get to the root well enough. Uh, What I'm doing dealing with the root isn't sufficient. And so the root of the love of money, which is the root of all evil, is a root that is, is embedded in the human heart. And every single one of us in here would be dishonest if we didn't say it still had tentacles clinging to our heart. Therefore, let none of us, myself included, go into this series thinking, well, this really isn't for me. I'll just put it on autopilot until Easter. We need to hear what the Word of God has to say about those those little roots that are still dug deep into each one of our hearts. Let God's Word take repeated swings at them. Now, in the Bible, we see, in the New Testament specifically, we see two main purposes for giving. Number one is to meet the physical needs of others. Uh, Primarily, first and foremost, our brothers and sisters in the church. And we see this in the early church in in Acts chapter 2 and verses 44 through 45. Then later in Acts chapter 4, verses 34 through 47, you see this. um, Not through 47, through 37, I should say. You you see them selling their possessions. When, When anyone in the church was in need, when a need arose, it doesn't just say they all sold their possessions, period, and then like some sort of a socialist commune gathered the money and then distributed evenly amongst everybody. No, it says whenever a need arose, the people were holding on to their possessions so loosely that it was no big deal for, for a guy like Barnabas to then go sell his property and say, I'm going to meet these needs of these widows and orphans and whoever else by selling my property so that these needs can be met. And that's how it worked in, in the early church. And of course, we know it wasn't perfect. We see that root of the love of money, because right after the, uh, the, the story of Barnabas being so generous, we have, of course, the famous story of 
Ananias and Sapphira, which isn't so beautiful. So that's one reason, to meet the physical needs of others, but also to provide for the ministry of the word and the ministers of the word. There are certain roles in the church body that were structured in such a way by God to have their living built into the actual role. And we see it in the New Testament with missionaries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors. So Jesus teaches this in Matthew 10, 10, and Paul does in Romans 15, 27, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, in Galatians 6, 6 through 10. Those are some of the passages where we see this, this being taught, that the church is to provide for the ministry of the word by providing for the ministers. And, and Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14, he said, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so we read that in the text. So there's two main reasons. There's the physical needs being met primarily of the brothers and sisters in the church. And then the provision to the ministers and for the ministry of the word to go forth. Now, I, I say that, I share those two reasons with you this morning simply to say that today's text mainly deals with that first reason. The, the, the meeting of the physical needs of other believers who were suffering. But the principles given in today's text apply to all types of giving. So I want us to see the principles in a broad light here, but specifically we know this text is addressing those other saints, specifically saints in Jerusalem that were in need. So with that, let me give you a little historical context for today's passage. See, there was the church in Jerusalem, which was the first church, and it had become impoverished, and God had put it on Paul's heart to take a collection to meet the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. So we read of Paul doing this in in Romans chapter 15, verse 26, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, we read that, that Paul had, had already, had, was putting this need before the Corinthian church and was asking them to take an offering, to make a collection for the Jerusalem believers. Now, why was such a collection needed? Well, the situation in Jerusalem was that the church had grown very rapidly. You remember that they had, on the day of Pentecost... They had 3,000 join the church on the day of Pentecost. And that's in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 41. But then later in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we read that 5,000 men were added to the church. And it, it just says men. It could, there could have been women and children on top of that. So at least 5,000 more were added just a little time later. So there's massive amounts of people who've come into the church. And with such large growth, there's immediate financial uh, challenges now, take into account also that a large portion of the growth of those who came in uh, were, were Jews who had actually come from, from different parts of the Gentile world who would make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem specifically for, like, the Feast of Pentecost. And so they had, they had come back, and, and now upon becoming Christians, they decided to stay in Jerusalem. Now, why would they do that? Well, because the only church is in Jerusalem at that point. The only place to hear the apostles' teachings is in Jerusalem. So all these pilgrims that come in, and that's the reason the tongues went forth in Acts chapter 2, is because there were all these non-Hebrew, um, non-Aramaic-speaking Jews there, and they were hearing the gospel preached in their language. And, and so you, they, they come into the church, and they're not going back to their homes. And so imagine the burden that would have been upon the, the early church because of that. Now, the early church also was destitute because of reasons like widows and orphans being cut off from the Jewish system of alms. The money that would be given in the temple would often, a portion of that would be used to relieve the suffering of orphans and widows. But when these orphans and widows became Christians, 
They would be cut off from this Jewish system. And then on top of all that, we know that there was um, severe persecution um, that was happening on the church. And then we read in, in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, that in A.D. 60, there was a severe famine that fell upon the church. So there is, they're in deep trouble. This is a bad situation in Jerusalem. So Paul, with his deep love for his Jewish brethren, um, he, he makes this effort, he puts forth this effort to raise money to help them in their time of need. So now he is sending Titus to Corinth to collect the money that they had pledged earlier. So back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we hear Paul putting before them this, this idea of collecting the money. Apparently they had, they had made a commitment to do that. And now Paul sends Titus to hold them to that commitment in this passage that we're looking at today. So what we have here today in chapters 8 and 9 is this unit dealing with that effort that Paul's putting forth to collect from the Corinthian church what they have already pledged. So to start off with, in verses 1 through 5, Paul wants to inspire the Corinthians and stir them up to generosity by giving them an example to follow. And the example is that of the Macedonian churches. Now the Macedonian churches were the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. So Paul wants to put forth the example of their giving to help the churches in Corinth, the church in Corinth, give as they should. So let us this morning, look at this text. I want us to look at the giving of the Macedonian churches. And in doing so, my hope is that the word will, will stir us up as we look at the Macedonian churches. And it will it'll work like a mirror causing us to look at the word and examine our own giving. So, the first thing we see here in the Macedonian churches is simply this. Grace-enabled giving. Grace enabled giving. Now in your notes there I have one long sentence and I'm just going to be filling out little parts of it at a time. And so here's the first thing we see is that the giving that the Macedonian churches practiced was grace enabled. Look at verse 1. We want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The first thing we need to see about this lavish generosity of the Macedonian churches is that it was a work of God's grace in their hearts. It wasn't just inspired by God's grace or motivated by God's grace. It was a direct result of God's grace. God's grace had empowered it. God's grace had enabled it. The ability to give was itself a gift from God. You look at that. Look at verse 1 again. The grace of God that has been given among the, Macedon the churches of Macedonia. So the grace to give was itself a gift from God. And that's the first thing we notice here in their giving. So Harbins, we cannot begin our focus on good stewardship and on generous giving with us. It doesn't start with us. Remember the sinful woman last week in last week's sermon who came into the house and poured out a treasure's worth of oil at Jesus' feet. Remember that her actions were the result of her having been forgiven, of her having been transformed, of her having been given grace. Her lavish generosity was the fruit of her salvation and not the root of it. So too these believers in Macedonia, and so too for us. 
And grace is a repeated theme here in chapters 8 and 9. Uh, we see it in verse 4, in verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 16. And then in chapter 9, oh wait, we also see it in verse 19. And then in chapter 9, in verse 8, verse 14, verse 15. The word is grace, the Greek word is charis, okay? Which, which is a word that has a very wide semantic range. And so in this passage here, it, it, it doesn't always refer to, in this whole text, it doesn't always refer to God's initiating grace. But in this verse, it clearly does. So yet again, in the scripture, we see the tension and the harmony between the antecedent work of God's grace and the subsequent willful and morally accountable decisions of man. We see in verse 1, again, that the grace of God enabled the giving. And then in verse 3, we see that they gave of their own accord. There's no contradiction here, but merely the ongoing tension in God's word that teaches us the truth that our free moral actions as believers are predicated upon God's free grace. We see it again later in this passage. If you want to run your finger down to chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, Look at these words here. It says, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Verse 17. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So in verse 16 we see that God put into heart, into the heart of Titus, this care for the people of Corinth. And then we see in verse 17 he's going of his own accord. There's no contradiction there. But why does Paul keep doing this to us? Why is he continually reminding us that God's grace is the initiating factor not only in our salvation, but even in our good deeds? He does it so that God gets all the glory that's due his name. As commendable as the Macedonians were, Paul didn't want the Corinthians or us putting them on a pedestal. We're not coming here this morning and saying how great are the Macedonians even though we're looking at the Macedonians we're coming in this morning saying how great is God look at what he did through the Macedonians that's why Paul keeps doing this to us he wants to make sure our praise is aimed in the right direction the scriptures continually protect the glory of God and free us from the temptation to worship men so generous giving, first and foremost, is a work of God. Therefore, if we are already in the habit of giving generously and sacrificially, we should be praising God for his work in us, and we should be asking God to continue it and to enable more of it. And conversely, if any of us in here have not been giving generously and sacrificially as we should, the key to start giving isn't self-motivation. But repentance followed by heartfelt prayer that involves earnest pleading that God would do a work in our heart. So that's where it starts. If your family, like my family, wants to give more in this year and in the years to follow, it doesn't start with a family meeting saying, okay, guys, how can we do this? It starts on your knees before God, begging God to do it in us. That's where all of this starts. Every bit of it starts with God. Don't let us be so foolish as to think we can give more sacrificially on our own. I don't have that much confidence in me. 
nor any of you sorry. But I have a ton of confidence in the sovereign God of the universe who takes hearts and makes them do things that just blows your mind. So that's where we start. We start on our knees. My desire isn't to motivate us with rhetoric or guilt or anything. My desire is that the word of God will do a gracious work of God in our hearts, mine included. Generosity is the gracious spiritual fruit produced in the transformed heart of a spirit-indwelt believer. Randy Alcorn, in his good book on giving, he's got a couple of them, but one of them is called The Treasure Principle. He wrote this, As thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. When God's grace touches you, you can't help but respond with generous giving. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the Macedonia churches in this text. So grace-enabled giving is the kind of giving we want at Harbin's. Gospel-centered giving starts with grace. Now notice specifically how grace works in the Macedonians. It enables them to do the next thing, and that is to overcome their circumstances. In the example of the Macedonian churches, we see grace-enabled, circumstance-defying giving. Circumstance-defying giving. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed with a wealth of generosity on their part. Now we read this verse here. In our flesh, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Severe test of affliction, abundance of joy, extreme poverty, overflowing with generosity. The math doesn't add up for us. When we look at this verse. I don't know how many of you in here are good at math. I'm not. I hate math. I hate it with every fiber of my being. I hate it when I was in school getting those word problems. Where you get this little paragraph that says if Johnny was on a train going east at a thousand miles per hour. And Susie was in an airplane in Singapore. When are they going to meet? And you're going, what? Okay, it doesn't make any sense. That's how I felt every time I got to one of those word problems. I felt kind of the way I felt when I read this verse. It it doesn't add up. The math doesn't seem to make any sense. Now first we see that the churches in Macedonia were under a severe test of affliction. It wasn't just a test, a trial. It was a severe test, a severe trial. The word literally means large quantity so I think the idea here isn't just the, the, the intensity of a specific trial, but that there are a bunch of trials going on in their lives. A severe test of affliction. There's, there's this heaping amount of affliction, affliction on top of affliction going on in their life. The word affliction could also be translated oppression. There's severe oppression in their life, in their church. That this word that's used for affliction here was also used to refer to the crushing of grapes. So they, they were under, this is the way I sort of interpret it, they were under crushing loads of affliction. Crushing loads of affliction is where these Macedonian Christians found themselves. Now, what did this severe test of affliction consist of? Well, we, we don't know. We do know some things from history. There were economic woes that plagued this part of the world, mainly because Rome had come in. This this wasn't one time a very prosperous region. 
with gold mines, copper mines, salt mines, a great shipbuilding industry. But Rome had come in and they had gutted the, the region. They had just stripped the region of all its natural resources. And on top of that, they had levied these huge devastating taxes upon the Macedonians. So the economic conditions were certainly deplorable. But I think we add to that the fact that, that the Christians in this area were severely persecuted. We, we read in 1 Thessalonians 1.6 that they had received the word in much affliction. There's that same word, affliction. So they, they were persecuted. And we read more of their afflictions in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 through 10. And then in Philippians 1, verse 29. So this affliction of persecution plus the economic woes that they found themselves, certainly this had done a number on their resources and on their, their emotional state of mind. At least you'd think it would have done something. So we read in verse 2 that they were also in extreme poverty. Now, there are two words for poverty in the New Testament. One refers to being poor, being low on the economic scale. Just, be, I think we could just call that poor. But the other word used in the New Testament is often used of beggars. It's used of utter destitution. So we would call that being dirt poor. And, and Paul chooses the latter of these two words. He wants to describe their poverty not just as poor, but as being dirt poor. They are absolutely, utterly destitute. But Paul's not done with just using that word. He wants to, to describe that destitution even more. And so he uses the word extreme, which literally means deep. They had deep destitution. So there was this, there was this crushing affliction and this deep, deep destitution that the Macedonian churches found themselves in. They were poor, the poor of the poor... Matter of fact, what's so interesting is they actually may be worse off than the Jerusalem Christians. They actually may be worse off than the people they're actually raising the money for. So do you see something this morning? If our giving is not supernatural in that it's grace-enabled, we would not be able to overcome those type of circumstances. The Macedonians would not have been able to overcome those type of circumstances. That's why it was a grace-given generosity. Our flesh will always use our circumstances, our flesh will always use our circumstances as an excuse not to give. If you just knew the situation my family was in. I want to give and once things get better, I'll give. That's usually not a true statement, by the way. If we don't give now, in the midst of our trials that we face, we won't give later. For as long as we are in these bodies, there will always be trials and there will always be excuses that Satan whispers into our ear. Don't fool yourself to think the excuses will disappear ten years down the road, five years down the road, one year down the road. They won't. There will be new excuses. New whisperings of why you in your affliction, you in your poverty, can't even begin to think about giving. And again, that's why it doesn't start with you. It starts with God. It starts with grace. The Macedonians show us that giving has nothing to do with how much money we have. Generosity is not some privilege afforded to the wealthy. 
It is a grace-enabled disposition of the heart that cannot be explained quantitatively or even logically. Is that not the very point of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 21, verse 1? Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put two small copper coins. And he said, truly, verily, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they have all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she has to live on. That is grace-enabled, circumstance-defying giving. It has to be grace-enabled. It has to be grace-enabled because it doesn't add up in our minds. The math doesn't work. How can she give all she has to live on? Someone tell that widow that she could just give one coin. The scripture says she has two. Someone tell the widow, it's okay just giving 50%. Someone, someone stop her. It doesn't make any sense what she's doing. Doesn't she realize the very, the very coffers that she's dropping her living into are the ones drawn from in order to provide assistance for orphans and widows just like herself? Why doesn't she just keep her money? It doesn't make sense. We're going we're gonna to have to help her out in the long run anyway. Why, is, why doesn't she just keep it? No one would have an issue with that. It's understandable. It makes sense. Matter of fact, for her, keeping it seems to be wiser and safer. Far be it that we or anyone should deprive this widow of the joy and the pleasure of giving simply because the math doesn't add up in our minds. Far be it for anyone to deprive the Macedonians of the absolute pleasure and joy of giving sacrificially because it doesn't add up in our math problem. And so we have not only the Macedonians with grace-enabled, supernatural giving, we have it in this widow as well. She drops both coins because it's not about math or logic or understanding. It's about worship. It's about sacrifice. It's about loving God and about loving man. It's about joy. It's about a greater treasure. It's about all these things being enabled by grace. Grace that defies circumstances, bad circumstances, and good circumstances. For us Americans, I'm more worried about the good circumstances keeping us from giving as we should. Let me take you to some other words of Jesus in chapter 14 of Luke, verse 16. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. I think part of the reason Jesus gives us this parable is to show us how deadly good circumstances can be too. 
It's not wrong to own a field, to buy a field. It's not wrong to buy oxen. It's not wrong to get married and to save for your family. Those things are not bad unless they keep us from the banquet. Unless they keep us from greater treasure. Greater pleasure. So we need God's grace to keep us from the love of money, whether it be in good circumstances or bad circumstances. I don't care what circumstance you find yourself in or I find myself in, the love of money is still in the heart of man. So we need God's grace. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now we like to quote verses 5 and 6 when we're in a scary situation, right? I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? But I believe what we fear most is losing the stuff that makes us content. You see, we need God's grace to sever the root of the love of money. And that's why we need to trust that God will never leave us or forsake us. The writer of Hebrews connects that promise of God not leaving us with how we handle our money. Because he wants our confidence and our peace and our contentment to be in the right treasure. And not be misplaced. So we see in this church grace-enabled circumstance-defying giving, but beyond that, we also see that it was joy-fueled. When, when we are willing to set aside the pleasure of earthly treasure, God replaces it with a higher pleasure for a higher treasure. And in this case, it's joy. Now look, between, in the scripture here, between the severe test of affliction and the extreme poverty is something marvelous. I mean, listen to it. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So, so in the middle of this bad description of what's going on in their lives, we have this mention of joy. It's like it doesn't fit in. That's why the math doesn't add up. So here they are in severe affliction and in deep poverty, and God's grace descends upon them. So here they are. Remember the the picture again. The poverty is deep, deep. And God's grace descends upon them and is poured into them. And then what begins to fill them, their deep poverty, now they begin to get filled with what? With joy. And then that joy overflows with generosity. So that's the... Paul's really giving us, a, by using words like deep, he's giving us a picture here. It's like the, the, the afflictions have dug a big hole in their life, yet because their treasure isn't in, on the earth, God has filled them with grace and now they're overflowing with joy. God loves a cheerful giver according to 2 Corinthians 9, 7. What God's grace gives us is a greater pleasure which severs the root of the false pleasures that money has given us. The love of money is an imposture love. And the joy of money is an imposture joy. 
We were created for better love and better joy. We need God's grace to replace those things with true love and true joy. Over and over again we see that trials seem to prepare us for joy. I mean, you see joy associated with trials in passages like Matthew 5, 12. Romans 5, 3, James 1, 2, 1 Peter 1, 6, 1 Peter 4, 13. I wish I had time to read all these. And if I thought all of you were still behind an hour, I would go ahead and do it because the clock you know, would say that we're still on time. But the air we breathe in our culture and even in our churches goes against this. So we need God's grace to enable us to, to let go of lesser joys and embrace higher ones Matthew 13, 44, that's what this text is all about in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his, what? His joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. This is a picture, it's hard to see on our screen right here. This is from the journal of a missionary who gave it all up including his very life while he was still young. He wrote these words right here where that star is. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You may want to go look up that Luke passage, Luke 16, verse 9 and following. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that was Jim Elliot who just a few months later would have a spear thrusted through him. And he was immediately ushered in the presence of his game. Oh, friends, let us go after greater pleasure. Let us go after greater treasure. Let us go after greater joy. This well-known quote from C.S. Lewis says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires... Not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased with the mud pies of our bank accounts and our cars in our houses, in our 401ks, and everything else. When God is offering us treasure, treasure that can't even be imagined. It is a greater joy to let go of earthly treasure and thereby know and experience Jesus even more now, the blessings that come now, the fellowship with him and the love with him and the love with his body, to participate in his word going forth, that is a much greater joy. Just the the blessings you get now, participating and giving to the work of the gospel, produces joy in you that's far greater than any of these earthly treasures. But of course we know that when these bodies are spent, we're ushered into the presence of God, where in Psalm 116 we say, it says that there is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Don't settle for the empty joy of a full wallet. Don't settle for the empty joy of a full wallet. Now, I'm not saying, 
I know the rejoinder. I know the comeback. I'm not saying that we are to be foolish and sinfully reckless in our money. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But I am saying that we should be intentionally sacrificial and we should even be calculated risk takers with the wealth we have for the glory of God. God is calling on us to let it all go even if he's not calling on us to give it all at this time. We are to take our hands off of all of it and give however much of it the grace of God moves in us to give. I know he is calling on all of us to give more than our flesh is comfortable with. And when that happens, I guarantee you, what you get far outweighs what you lose. And the more we are filled with spirit-wrought joy, grace-enabled, circumstancing, joy-fueled giving is what we see. And the more we're filled with that, the more we're generous. And so that's why I, the last point is open-handed giving. By open-handed, I simply mean generous, radically generous. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Again, they are emptied of affliction, and they are emptied through affliction, by affliction, and deep poverty. God has poured grace into them. They are filled with joy, and they overflow with a wealth, a treasure, a riches of generosity. Wealth, the word simply is treasure, and it's singular here, so it's talking about a singular treasure. So it was their treasure to give. It was their treasure to give. When you give, you discover that giving itself is such a gift from God. Giving itself is a treasure. Giving itself is a fortune. Giving itself is great riches. Generosity here is an interesting word. It means genuineness or sincerity, but it also carries the idea of simplicity or single-mindedness. So true generosity is single-minded, meaning that we cannot serve both God and money. Generosity is single-minded. We cannot serve God and money. We have one master. And again, we don't measure generosity by numbers or by, by dollar signs or by zeros at the end of a, other numbers or by percentages. I know some of you here are waiting for me to answer that question that's in your mind about percentages. I didn't want to start there because the New Testament doesn't start there. Then start with how much of a percentage you should give. If, if I want you to go home and calculate your giving, this would be a completely different sermon. I want you to go out and fall on your face before God. Because I want whatever happens at Harvest to be a God work, not the fact that we have people that are better at math than I am. And so, so it's not about numbers. It's not about dollar signs. It's not about percentages. It's about Sacrifice. It starts with sacrificial generosity. The amount the Macedonian churches gave may have been relatively little. We don't know. But the sacrifice was great. And the gift was a treasure of generosity. For it came from a heart filled with grace and overflowing with joy. When we um, first planted the church, I mean, there was no income for the church to provide anything not only for, for my family, but also just for the resources of the church. We, just, we literally had nothing. We launched out. 
We had some other churches support us, but all that money needed to go to support the operational cost, and we took a little bit of it to provide some sort of stipend for myself. But after that, it had to be all raising money, sending out support letters. And so we did that. And many, many support letters came back. Many were, were um, hey, we'll pray for you. But I'll be honest with you, when we sent the letters out and we prayed over those letters, there were certain names that I was sending letters to, and I'm thinking, oh, you know what? I bet, I bet they'll give. And some of the people I expected to hear from, I never heard from. Never. Not even prayers from some of the people. I, I remember being deeply disappointed that we didn't even get some response from some people, and not even about money, but simply, hey, I'm praying for you. I mean, I had everything pre-stamped for them and everything. All they do is send it back. What shocked us in those first three years were people supporting us that really couldn't support us. There's no way. Aunt Nancy Strickland. She's called Aunt Nancy because she is a, was a missionary. Is Aunt Nancy still alive but not doing well? A missionary living basically off whatever the government can help her with. Very poor. For three years, Aunt Nancy sent us a little check. What a lot. But the day we got it, we were like, Aunt Nancy, she can't afford to do this. And what you want to do is say, no, Nancy, no. <laughs> take, take that. You need that. You want to slap the widow's hand away? Say, stop. Don't put both the, just take one coin. What do you, you don't know what you're doing. You want to look at the Macedonians and say, this doesn't make any sense. Stop it. Paul says this in Philippians 4, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He's speaking to the Philippians. The Philippians were one of the Macedonian churches. They had supported him. They were supporting him. They were sending him support. Unless anyone think that Paul was trying to extort them, he said, I'm not seeking the gift, but you know what? I'm going to let you support me. You know why? I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Because you, when you give, you get something much more than that little bit of amount of money you were able to put aside to help me out. And so I'm not going to tell you no. What the widow got when she let go of everything was much greater than two little pennies. And it was much greater than all the stuff the rich people were putting in as well. So the question is, is that us? Are we experiencing grace-enabled, circumstance-defying, joy-fueled, open-handed giving? Well, the rest of this text will help us find out. It describes in more in detail what the nature of this generosity is. So I have ten questions. We're not going to do it this morning. I have ten questions to ask us based upon what we see from the Macedonians. We can't do it today, and we'll, we'll go through the rest of the text, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. And we'll take the next two weeks, maybe three, as we go through this. Verse 3 begins with the word for. For, so this is the reason they did this, right? They, here's, the, here's the marks of, of their generosity. For, and there's ten things in those next verses. So you can study those on your own at home this week. But I want to bring us all the way down to verse 9, because this is the foundation of all of our giving. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The only reason 
we can have grace-enabled, circumstance-defying, joy-fueled, open-handed giving is because our Savior gave himself as a grace-enabled, circumstance-defying, joy-fueled, open-handed sacrifice for us. Christian, let that be the foundation of this whole message this morning. Our giving must ultimately be gospel-centered giving. So let's stir one another up with that truth this morning that Christ Jesus has done much for us. Unbeliever here this morning, I ask you to consider the generosity of Jesus. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was born in the likeness of men to stand in our place. He experienced death to take our punishment for sin. So put your faith in him, for he is alive. He is a living hope. Death could not hold the perfect son of God, nor can it hold anyone who puts their faith in him. And if you'll put your faith in him, you will have found the greatest treasure you could ever find. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Macedonian churches, for their generosity, for the way they supported Paul that we read of in Philippians, for the way the Bereans accepted your word, but first examined everything Paul had to say according to the scriptures. For the Thessalonians, that even though they were in severe persecution, they served you and served you and served you. And they looked forward with great hope to your return. But as thankful as I am for those churches, Father, I am most thankful for Jesus. Father, thank you for your son who took on the, the role of a slave and let go of, of heavenly riches Descending into this hellhole to snatch us from the flames. So, Father, I pray that you would just help us. Help us, Lord, to, to be people who are grounding everything we do, not just our giving. The way we talk to our spouse the way we discipline kids, may we ground every deed we do on the gospel. So Lord, I pray that you'd do that in us. Stir us up, stir us up, stir us up. Be glorified this morning, Jesus, as we sing this closing song. And Lord, if there be anyone here who has not found the treasure, Lord, we know the only way they can find it is by your grace, and we pray that you move upon them Help them to see it this morning. Open up their eyes. And then grant them the grace to submit and let everything else go. And put all their faith, all their hope in you alone as their one Lord and Savior. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.